Today I'm going to give the first of three talks about heart disease, and this one is going to be about coronary heart disease. Now, uh, the reason for doing this, of course, is that the heart is uh, an absolutely essential and extraordinary organ. Uh, at one level, it's a simple pump, but it's a great deal more than that. Uh, every day, it will pump around 100,000 times and will continue to do so uh, until the day you die. Uh, and by doing that, it takes oxygen to your vital organs, removes, uh, helps remove waste, uh, and it's very responsive to increased needs. So it'll, it'll increase its uh, rate of uh, pumping, the energy with which it does it, uh, if you need it, and then uh, go back to its base rate uh, when you don't. And it keeps your blood pressure uh, and flow optimized uh, for the organs of the body. So it's quite uh, a really remarkable organ. The function of the heart was actually uh, not known uh, properly when this college was uh, founded in 1597. Uh, and the first real uh, advance after that time uh, was in the 1620s when William Harvey demonstrated the circulation of the heart. Uh, that was a really extraordinary advance and has led to a lot subsequently. And the heart is really one of the most uh, studied organs because of its importance and because uh, treating heart disease uh, has become a central part of medicine. Now, in very broad terms, and of course I'm, uh, I'm giving a broad overview rather than the multiple uh, detailed uh, areas, uh, in broad terms, there are three sets of things that can go wrong with the heart. The first of which um, is uh, where the heart becomes short of oxygen, uh, mainly, not exclusively, because the blood vessels that supply the heart itself uh, start to get narrowed uh, or blocked. And that's uh, known as myocardial ischemia uh, or coronary heart disease. That's the subject of today's talk. Now, two other things that happen, which will be the subject of two subsequent ones. The heart's rhythm, normally very reliable, can go too fast or too slowly, uh, meaning that uh, it works much less efficiently. Uh, and the third thing is that the structures of the heart, might be the muscles, might be the uh, valves of the heart, uh, are damaged uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and those, broadly, are the majority of the things which cause problems with heart disease. But the one I'm going to concentrate on, and really the most important of those today, is myocardial ischemia, or coronary heart disease. Uh, its biggest importance is that this is one of uh, the main causes of people dying in the UK and in every country around the world. Uh, it's now the second most common cause of people dying, uh, dementia just uh, slightly ahead of it in the UK, but globally uh, it would be the uh, main cause. And within that, uh, heart attacks, um, myocardial infarctions, uh, as they're known medically, are the principal reason. And if you, show, if you see the slide uh, I put up here, uh, what it shows is that uh, really quite a significantly greater number of deaths from this than the next most common uh, cause. The top one is, as I say, dementia. Uh, and there has been what we've got in the, uh, the dark colours is the most up-to-date data from the Office of National Statistics. Uh, and then in the, light, the lighter colour bar uh, is the average over the last five years. So there's been a slight improvement over that time. Uh, but um, uh, the, uh, the, the fact remains it is a major cause of mortality. 
It is, however, better than it used to be. And if you look at this uh, graph, and I've shown this before in a slightly different context, uh, what you see is that it, back in the 1960s, uh, heart uh, and circulatory disease caused around half the deaths in the country. And it's gone, gone down now very substantially uh, to a still substantial around quarter of the deaths. And what the graph here shows is the age standardized mortality rates uh, over the period uh, 1911 to 2011. In the dark uh, solid lines, what we have is heart disease peaking in the 60s, 50s and 60s and gradually decreasing, uh, red for women, uh, blue for men. Uh, in the dashed line is cancer, uh, which is uh, beginning to uh, catch up with and, and overtake heart disease. And in the dotted line, infectious diseases, absolutely dominant uh, over a century ago, and certainly when this college was founded, uh, but much less important uh, over the last century. Coming more up to date uh, over the last few years, this is what has happened to heart disease uh, in terms of mortality, coronary heart disease, per 100,000 people sit between 1969 uh, and 2020, which is when uh, these data uh, run on to. And as you can see, in the dark bars at the top um, uh, is uh, the male rate. Uh, the one at the bottom uh, is the female rate, and in the middle is the average uh, for men and women. Uh, two uh, things really to follow on from this. The first of which is there has been a really remarkable reduction uh, over that time in terms of mortality from coronary heart disease or ischemic heart disease. And the second thing is that this hasn't happened in a single jump. This is not a single breakthrough. This is a whole series of scientific advances which have happened incrementally, built on top of one another, 5% improvement, built on another 5% improvement over time, and then steadily uh, rolled out. And the third thing just to note uh, is that the difference between men and women, although there's still a significantly greater rate of heart disease deaths in men, uh, has decreased. And some of this is explained by a number of factors, uh, in particular, actually, changes in smoking. And if you look in people under 75, and these would be relatively young deaths in the modern era, uh, you're, you see a, a, a probably even more uh, dramatic improvement, where the rates of people dying of heart attacks or myocardial ischemia are really very low compared to where they were historically. So what actually causes um, ischemic heart disease or coronary heart disease? Well, the main cause, it's not the only one, but by far the main one, uh, is atherosclerosis. Uh, and this is a buildup of mainly fatty but also fibrous material uh, in the arteries that supply the heart itself, the coronary arteries. And these fatty deposits start actually very early on in life. Uh, and then gradually build up over time. And initially, it makes relatively little difference. Uh, functionally, the heart's got uh, quite a bit of functional uh, reserve. But you then get to the point where they built up to a point there is a critical narrowing. And at that point, uh, people can start to get symptoms. They get a bit short of breath. They can start to get pain in the chest, also known as angina. I'll come back to uh, angina. And then, in some cases, the, the narrowing 
actually suddenly gets a lot smaller or blocks off completely. And this is what tends to cause a heart attack or myocardial infarction. And the usual mechanism, although there are, uh, there are others, is you get uh, an uh, inflammation or rupture of this uh, fatty material and a clot forms over the top of that, uh, that and then blocks the remaining artery. And this leads to a heart attack. And uh, if an area of the heart is starved of oxygen, that area of the muscle will be strongly damaged uh, in the territory of that blood vessel uh, and uh, it may well die and cease to be functionally useful. So that is what a heart attack is. Fortunately, and this underlies a lot of the improvements we have seen and could see in the future, uh, many of the things which lead to this happening are modifiable. We can do a lot to change them. So if you look at that extraordinary improvement in heart disease, ischemic heart disease, uh, three broad sets of things have contributed and the first of those is primary prevention. Primary prevention is something which is done often by the state, uh, but by society, uh, where the state is simply the mechanism by which this happens, to reduce the risk for the whole population. Not asking whether you've individually got risk, just say, let's try and reduce the risk for absolutely everybody. And this, of course, is a very common disease. Then you've got secondary prevention, and that's uh, on top of that, is where you say this individual person has, got a, has either got early disease or they've got very specific risk factors or things that make a disease much more likely. Uh, and um, let's do something specifically for her or for him uh, to reduce the risk uh, of further problems in the future. And this will be a discussion between an individual person uh, a patient and their doctor, nurse, or other healthcare provider generally to talk about the risks and benefits of various uh, treatments uh, that are preventive. This is secondary prevention. And the third thing is when someone has significant disease or has a heart attack or other major event, treating uh, this so that the chances of dying or having long-term disability as a result of it is significantly reduced. So you've got primary prevention, secondary prevention, which is done for individuals uh, and treatment uh, after events or for significant disease. And I'm going to go through each of those in turn because the improvement has to be understood as a combination of all of these. Now, for primary prevention of ischemic heart disease, um, this uh, has several different components, all of which have an important uh, action. If you put all of them together, the impact on heart disease can be very significant indeed. The first of which is, and I'll go through each of these in turn, reducing smoking uh, and also secondhand smoke, uh, passive smoking, where someone else is smoking and uh, a particular person downwind of them or near them uh, is exposed to that smoke because cigarette smoke is extremely uh, liable to uh, speed up heart disease uh, very substantially. The second is reductions in air pollution, which have been uh, significantly underestimated, I think, in their importance. Then there's doing things which help to modify the diet uh, in a way which people are still eating the foods they enjoy but with less risk. And in particular, this involves reducing salt because, as we'll come on to, salt raises blood pressure uh, and also some of the fats you can have, particular kinds of fats in foods. Very important that we make it easy for people to exercise at all points along their life course because exercise uh, is important. 
uh, and uh, finally, uh, reducing the societal drivers of obesity. And I'll go through each of those in a bit more detail. Starting with smoking. Um, smoking leads to premature mortality, often very premature uh, mortality and symptoms from heart disease. It does very many other things as well, as everyone in the audience will know. It causes lung cancer, many other cancers, chronic lung diseases. But it also, importantly, significantly increases the risk of heart disease, uh, ischemic heart disease specifically. Uh, smokers themselves are at very substantially increased risk to non-smokers, and if you're a passive smoker or a second-hand smoker because someone else is smoking around you, uh, that still has a, an appreciable additional risk. Now, this is important at an individual level. It's also actually, it helps explain uh, some of the significant difference there is around the UK and indeed many other countries in terms of the rates of mortality from heart disease. There is a strong correlation between the areas of the country which have high smoking rates and the areas of the country which have a high deaths from coronary heart disease. And you can see that in this map on the left, uh, darker colors are people who are smoking, uh, and on the right, darker colors uh, are people with ischemic heart disease. Now, this isn't the only reason for these differences geographically, but it is probably the easiest to uh, address. And were there to be a massive reduction in smoking, it would significantly reduce some of the variation we see around the country. Improvements in heart disease can be very rapid when smoking reduces or stops. And I think we'll just give an example. Uh, the last really major um, bit of uh, primary prevention against smoking uh, was the uh, ban on smoking in public places where you could be uh, affecting everyone around you. Uh, and uh, studies of this showed many advantages, but within the heart area, uh, a significant reduction in heart disease at a population level occurred. Uh, and this was often uh, really quite rapid. And what you can see on the right uh, is a study that looked, in this case, uh, specifically in Liverpool, but it could have been anywhere. The bar is where the um, uh, ban on smoking in public places was. And what you can see is an almost immediate drop uh, in the number of people who were admitted with coronary symptoms. So really you can have a very rapid effect. So there's a rapid reduction in risk when people stop smoking and then a longer term uh, reversion back to ordinary risk over many years. But at any point you stop smoking, it improves the outcome in terms of heart disease. Very important to stress that the model of the cigarette industry is to take people at the youngest age they are allowed by law and addict them using very, very aggressive marketing. Most people who smoke wish to stop. And therefore, the choice has been taken away from them by being deliberately addicted by very powerful, very profitable companies at an early stage of their lives. Fortunately, smoking rates are dropping in the UK uh, for purposes of health, painfully slowly, but. Uh, the good news is that the rates in younger people are actually probably dropping fastest. And rates of smoking in young people now, compared to uh, when uh, people of my generation uh, were in their 20s or uh, late teens, are much lower and are still dropping. Uh, current generation are uh, extremely sensible about uh, this. 
The next um, big thing that society can do to reduce the risk of coronary heart disease, this very common fatal disease, uh, is reductions in air pollution. People, I think, underestimate quite how important air pollution certainly was historically and still is to some extent now. Uh, outdoor air pollution um, uh, caused by factories, by uh, vehicles, indoor air pollution as well. And for those who are interested in details in this, I wrote a report on this, which was released uh, just a month ago. Over the last uh, several decades, most forms of air pollution have dropped very substantially. And I'd like this in, in what we've got is in the dotted black line on the right is uh, where things were back in the 1970s. And what you can see is the proportionate reduction in multiple forms of air pollution. For uh, heart disease, coronary heart disease, probably the most important of these is particulate matter, or so-called PM2.5, small particles. And these have been uh, dropping uh, for really quite a long period of time, although this has unfortunately flattened out a bit uh, more recently. So this improvement in air pollution has certainly contributed to the very significant improvements we've seen, and there's still some way to go. And some of the things we're going to see, like the electrification of vehicles, uh, some of the uh, final reductions uh, in many of the most polluting forms of industry, uh, will lead to further reduction in risk. Making exercise easier and fun throughout the life course and building it into ordinary day or making it something which people look forward to is also really important. Exercise is one of the most protective things that can be done uh, to reduce the risk of uh, coronary artery, artery disease, ischemic heart disease. It's also very good for many other uh, conditions as well, but it's specifically uh, in this situation. And starting in childhood, making exercise just the norm, things like the uh, daily mile, mile is used in very many uh, schools, uh, walking football in older age, but also making it easy for people to, for example, have active transport. We used to have, and um, what we've got on the right is the distance traveled by bike in the UK. And if you went back to the 1940s and early 50s, huge numbers of miles or kilometers as they now uh, would be, uh, were traveled by bicycle, uh, much lower now. Uh, that is something we easily uh, could turn around. It would, have a, it would have an immediate and significant positive impact on health, including coronary heart disease. Changes into the diet, to the diet, um, where they can allow people to eat the things they want to eat but reduce the risk, uh, can have a very major uh, positive impact. And I'm just going to highlight one in particular, which is reductions in salt. Salt increases, mainly because of the sodium in it, uh, increases the blood pressure for uh, potentially for everybody, but in reality, for the most sensitive to um, salt are older people. And in the UK, uh, we've had a useful uh, reduction of around 15% in salt over the last decade. And most of this has been from processed food. And I'd like to uh, pay tribute to the uh, many companies which have been involved in trying to do this. And they usually do it incrementally so people don't realize that the salt is gradually uh, reducing as time goes by. But we definitely need to go uh, significantly further. Some of the products on the market, thanks to um, uh, far-sighted views by the companies involved, have gone down by 20 to 40% less salt than 10 years ago, uh, but certainly there's a lot we could do to reduce the saltiness of uh, processed uh, and manufactured food. Now, I'm going to stress that because most of the salt in the UK diet is involuntary. The people eating it have no choice about it. They don't know it's there. They haven't added it into their plate. It wasn't their choice. 
Uh, and if you look on the right, what we've got is salt in processed foods, and that would include things like breads, for example, uh, and uh, that's up to um, uh, 60-ish percent of the salt in the diet. Uh, salt uh, that is a natural part of the product, uh, and then uh, the amount that people actually add to themselves. So the salt that people add themselves, in the sense the salt they choose to put in, uh, is less than 20% uh, of the salt they receive. So it's really the manufactured area that we have the biggest opportunity for change. But of course, uh, if people put less salt into their food, uh, that reduces their risks. And finally, in terms of the primary prevention things I want to talk about, this, this isn't an exhaustive list, uh, is obesity. Uh, and in the context of obesity, uh, in contrast to all the other things I've talked about so far, smoking, uh, air pollution, salt, for example, where things have been improving, uh, obesity has undoubtedly got worse. Uh, obesity directly leads to cardiovascular mortality. So even if someone has no other issues, if someone's living with obesity, the chances of cardiovascular disease are much greater. That's one of the reasons that, in medical terms, we're very keen to reduce obesity. It does a number of other things, increases some cancers, for example. Uh, and it also increases the risk of diabetes, which itself leads to an increased risk of heart disease, coronary artery disease. So obesity is a real driver of coronary artery disease. Uh, and uh, the problem we have here is people living with over being, over having, being over overweight and people living with obesity, uh, the proportion of people in the population has steadily increased. And if you look on the graph there, what you can see is just the average weight has steadily shifted to the right, where right is heavier towards people living with obesity. This is particularly depressing because what we're seeing is uh, areas of significant rising obesity, and these are much more common in areas of deprivation, and that's actually got worse over the last few years. So this is something we really do need to tackle uh, fairly forcefully. So those are primary prevention, things we can do to all of society to reduce the risk of heart disease. Now we move on to secondary prevention, and this is uh, where people will have treatment for particular conditions or risk factors or very early disease. Uh, and there are, I'm going to talk about Four, but I'm going to talk about uh, two in uh, detail. The first um, is to help at an individual level someone who's smoking to quit, someone who's living with obesity to help them reduce weight, uh, someone who's not doing exercise to increase uh, exercise. So this is kind of targeted uh, things, that, but things I've talked about already as risk factors. The second thing uh, is to identify people who've got high blood pressure, hypertension, and treat those. The third uh, is treating high cholesterol uh, in people who've got that. Uh, and finally, which I'm not going to talk about, I've done a full Gresham lecture on that to people who are interested in it, uh, is diagnosing and treating diabetes uh, as early as possible. So let's start off with high blood pressure, hypertension. This is a major, common, and treatable risk factor for ischemic heart disease. Now, just to understand a bit about the numbers, uh, when your heart is contracting, the force in the blood is going up, it's part of the way it pumps it, and you get a high blood pressure reading called a systolic uh, blood pressure, and then when it relaxes, you get a uh, lower blood pressure, and that's what's called the diastolic 
blood pressure, and all of us have got those two readings, systolic and diastolic. High blood pressure, hypertension, uh, contributes to, doesn't cause all of, but contributes to about half of heart and circulation disease. So it's a really substantial risk factor. And it's common, uh, around 28% of the UK population. Now, two things to say in, which are, I think, critical on this. The first of which is there are multiple possible ways in which blood pressure can be reduced. So if something doesn't suit someone, we can move from one uh, thing uh, to another. And secondly, there are a lot of people who are living, and this is what these data on the right show, uh, there are a lot of people in the UK living with obese, sorry, living with uh, hypertension who are not aware they have it and therefore are uh, not on treatment. So it's not a matter of their choice. They're not, not even aware uh, that this is a risk which could be managed down significantly. And this is a shame because blood pressure is actually very easy to, to measure. Uh, now we have automated uh, machines, uh, widely available, uh, and it is, I think, important for everybody, but particular people once they reach uh, sort of 40s and above, to know their numbers. Because we can measure blood pressure anywhere. Uh, one of these machines, cheap and robust, very, really pretty accurate. Uh, you can measure them at the doctor uh, or with a nurse, but you can also measure them at home, buy them from uh, local chemists, at work, shops, Measuring blood pressure, there are many, many places it's possible to do that. And then you'll know whether you've got a high systolic or diastolic blood pressure. And the readings uh, that, generally speaking, tend to trigger treatment are either uh, a high uh, systolic blood pressure above 140 uh, or a diastolic blood pressure of above uh, 90, usually uh, with repeated meeting, uh, readings. Now, there are certain things you can do to reduce blood pressure uh, which don't re re require drugs at all. They include um, uh, reducing your salt intake, as we talked about before, uh, reducing alcohol, because alcohol pushes uh, blood pressure up. Um, exercise, the more you exercise within, uh, in, in, in general, the lower your blood pressure. Um, uh, and uh, losing weight, even a little, will help. So it's not, it, there, are, there are lifestyle things we can do uh, to improve our blood pressures. But there are also uh, very many drugs which can reduce blood pressure. Uh, and they work by different mechanisms. I'm going to go through several of them because they're very important drugs. And several of the people in the audience will be on them. Many of the people in the audience will be on them at some point uh, in their lives. So it's worth understanding a bit about them. The point to make about this, though, is that whichever mechanism they use, by reducing the blood pressure, uh, they reduce the risk of ischemic heart disease. Now, which is the best drug for you, for me, if we have hypertension, uh, depends on many factors. It depends on age, depends on existing heart disease. Some drugs, many drugs, have particular additional benefits. It depends on ethnicity, uh, to some extent. It depends on side effects. Some, some drugs suit some people better than others. So if people go in, they're treated, and the side effects are problematic, uh, another drug uh, can be used. Common ones, these aren't exclusive, exclusively all of them, common ones which I'm going to talk about uh, in a bit more detail are ACE inhibitors, um, uh, thing called, things called angiotensin II receptor blockers, they have a lot of similarities, I'll come on to that, calcium channel blockers, uh, thiazide diuretic drugs, and beta blockers. There are others, but those are really the uh, main uh, groups of drugs you'll get in the UK. And these may be used 
uh, in different combinations. Most people will be treated on one drug, but some people are treated on two or more. Now, I think it's worth going through the mechanisms of these. So for the next five slides, I'm going to go through the mechanisms of these individual drugs just to get a feel for uh, where they came from and how differently uh, they act. But the final uh, thing they do is reduce the blood pressure. The first are the ACE inhibitors. And for many people now, these will be the first-line drugs to be used. These work on something called the renin-angiotensin system. And this is the kidney uh, notices when blood pressure drops. And it then activates uh, a system, the renin-angiotensin system, uh, which actually leads to the blood pressure being pushed up. So that's the kind of the underlying mechanism that it works on. It's a kind of, it's a way, it's, it's a way in which uh, the body uh, controls blood pressure, but sometimes the set point is too high. And uh, the first drugs that were found to work uh, on this system to reduce blood pressure uh, were shown to block this, and they in fact originally came from uh, the Brazilian pit viper, uh, this uh, photograph on the right. Now, by multiple, uh, and, and the, way, the, re the reason this was important for the pit viper was by dropping the blood pressure it, you know, it's catastrophically, which the drugs do not, uh, it could lead to um, uh, disabling its prey. This led by many steps uh, to the drug, the first of the most of the widely available ACE inhibitors, a drug called Captopril. But this was the first of uh, many uh, others that people may well have come across in the UK, enaropril, lisinopril, there are several others. Just a comment on drug naming, incidentally. Rather like uh, all of us, drugs have a surname uh, which actually tells you the family they come from uh, and a kind of first name that tells you it's them. So the prills are all, generally speaking, uh, ACE inhibitors. So the ACE inhibitors work by preventing an enzyme uh, uh, producing angiotensin 2, which is a signal drug, uh, and this leads to narrowing, angiotensin 2 leads to narrowing of the blood vessels and therefore forces the heart to work harder and the blood pressure to go up. That's the way it normally acts. So by blocking that, you get the reverse. You get, re you get re relaxation of the arteries and veins and therefore uh, the blood pressure drops and the heart has less strain on it. As with all drugs, and there's no drug without side effects, uh, there are side effects to this drug. Uh, probably the most common one that's the reason for people to stopping it, and it sounds trivial until you've got it, but it's a very important one, uh, is cough. Um, and people can get a uh, very annoying cough, uh, which means it needs to be stopped and another drug uh, is used. It reverses uh, when people stop the drug. Because um, this is a both a very effective mechanism to address the angiotensin um, uh, receptors, uh, but also the side effects from the ACE inhibitors that I've just talked about. Another class of drugs working on exactly the same system uh, has, been, uh, has been produced. Uh, and these are the angiotensin receptor blockers, um, uh, also known as angiotensin II receptor antagonists. So they work very much like the ACE inhibitors. In practical terms, they can be almost used interchangeably. But instead of um, the mechanism acting on the enzyme, what they do is they actually block the receptors. Uh, and there are a variety of drugs, again, which you can have. Uh, Losartan, uh, for example, is one of the ones uh, that may be widely used. They're all, they all tend to be, have this uh, tan at the end. Um, and uh, this uh, class of drugs uh, 
has very different side effects and uh, doesn't in particular have the cough problem. That can be uh, uh, a reason people want to stop taking ACE inhibitors. Working by a completely different mechanism are calcium channel blockers. The body uses calcium to signal to large numbers of cells in large numbers of environments, including uh, muscle cells. And uh, some of the calcium channels, when they, when they open, are going to signal to blood vessels that they should constrict uh, and initiate that constriction. So the uh, drugs that work as calcium channel blockers aim specifically to block these particular calcium channels. Uh, there are many types in the body, but these particular ones. And examples of drugs that do this are things like nifedipine. Uh, and the principal action, therefore, is to stop the constriction and therefore lead to a relaxation of blood vessels and so reduce blood pressure. They also can reduce spasm of coronary arteries, so this can be useful for symptoms in some people. Uh, and they do have side effects, including, for example, uh, fluid retention. A completely different mechanism, again, uh, are the thiazide diuretics. And these work in the kidney, and they mainly work by reducing reabsorption of sodium, which is being reabsorbed by the kidney the whole time to uh, hang on to it. Uh, and this reduces the sodium and uh, the total water, uh, and this is the principal mechanism, it's thought, by which these reduce blood pressure. But they also may uh, dilute blood, blood vessels to some extent. So these are diuretics. Uh, and the final um, uh, antihypertensive I want to talk about, and all of these drugs are important in, for other uses as well, are beta blockers. Uh, these uh, were um, uh, discovered and, and developed uh, back in the 1960s. Um, uh, Sir James Black, photographed here, uh, was one of the leading pioneers in this area. And this started from the understanding that adrenaline is used by the body as part of the flight and fight uh, mechanism, and it leads to the heart going faster uh, and uh, blood vessels constricting. It's basically getting the, re the, the, the body ready for, for action. So uh, adrenaline stimulates, uh, and these are the important bits for this particular drug, it has other actions as well. It stimulates beta receptors uh, and on several organs, um, and the beta blockers block this and stop the adrenaline having the actions of making uh, the, heart, the blood pressure go up uh, and the heart pump more rapidly. And again, many of these drugs have wide uses in medicine, including for reducing blood pressure. Examples include atenolol or brisoprolol, so lol uh, ending for most of these drugs. So those are examples of multiple types of antihypertensive, and which one is best for someone, as I said at the beginning, uh, varies. The next uh, big risk which can be dealt with by drugs is reducing cholesterol. Uh, high cholesterol, specifically high LDL cholesterol, uh, is associated with coronary heart disease and is part of that buildup of plaque uh, in, the, uh, in the blood vessels which causes coronary heart disease. LDL tends to rise with age, and of course, the risk of coronary heart disease also rises with age. 
The drug statins have really uh, given us an extremely powerful tool to reduce cholesterol, and there is clear evidence of benefit, particularly for people who've previously had a heart, uh, ischemic heart disease uh, problem, uh, uh, but also for people who haven't but who've got uh, raised cholesterol. It might be a family genetic reason, uh, but have got raised cholesterol. And what I've shown you, you won't see the details of this. The point I'm making on the right is multiple different subgroups have been looked at in big studies. Uh, in this case, a meta-analysis of 186, uh, over 186,000 patients, uh, randomized to statins or not, and they demonstrated all ages uh, and with multiple outcomes, including coronary heart disease, uh, there are improvements. So reducing uh, cholesterol and those who've got raised cholesterol uh, can be highly effective. Various drugs can reduce LDL cholesterol. Uh, the most important group are the statins, uh, and they're currently first-line treatment. And drugs such as atorvastatin uh, inhibit an enzyme, uh, and this plays a central role in producing cholesterol in the liver. But um, there are other drugs that are coming along uh, and are now in deployment, uh, and they work by a completely different mechanism, uh, and there are several drugs which uh, inhibit by a variety of different mechanisms, uh, something called uh, PCSK9, uh, and uh, an example of this is the drug Inclisiran, um, and uh, these uh, increase the liver's ability uh, to reduce cholesterol, essentially. Um, currently, these drugs are used only uh, where statins either can't be tolerated, and statins are usually very well tolerated by the great majority of people, uh, or where um, there are other reasons uh, that uh, they may be needed as additional um, treatment. So you've got primary prevention, the secondary prevention, particularly antihypertensives, reducing uh, cholesterol uh, and targeted action to help with things like smoking. Uh, and losing weight. But even with optimal prevention, many people will go on to have cardiac events, although significantly fewer than without. And I think as probably most people know, but it's worth remembering, a very severe pain in the chest uh, is one of the things that should make people think about uh, have they got a coronary event which could include a heart attack and many other possible causes. And um, heart attacks in particular, or myocardial infarction, uh, is where, as I said at the beginning, the coronary artery gets blocked and therefore there is insufficient oxygen to the, um, the muscle that that artery supplies and it, you get pain and damage and eventually death of the cells uh, which that artery supplies. Now, in terms of the symptoms people get from heart disease, um, there are uh, several, uh, and there are three uh, broad conditions I think it's worth talking about. The first uh, is angina, then unstable angina, and then uh, the most serious of these, uh, myocardial infarction or heart attack. So angina, which is the narrowing of the blood vessel, uh, but that is stable, uh, occurs generally on exercise or other things that stress the heart. It's typically chest pain, uh, but they may have jaw pain, they may have uh, arm pain, uh, and they may have shortness of breath. There are other things that can happen with it. But the thing about uh, stable angina is that it is predictable. 
So someone will find that they get angina, for example, they get their chest pain if they walk up two flights of stairs. And if they rest, then the angina goes away. And if they walk up another two flights of stairs, back it comes. Unstable angina and myocardial infarction, um, uh, heart attack, um, are a similar type of pain. Other symptoms uh, I'll come on to. But these occur or continue at rest. So maybe someone started uh, with a typical angina as they walked up the stairs, but then just the pain doesn't go away. This is a medical emergency. And a sudden shortness of breath, clamminess, dizziness, or nausea, uh, even in the absence of chest pain, um, can be possible symptoms. Not everybody who has a heart attack has pain, although the great majority do. Now, there are many possible causes of, a myocard of chest pain, and myocardial infarction heart attack is only one of them. Uh, but the things which would, people would be thinking about when assessing, if a paramedic, if a nurse, if a doctor is assessing, first thing are the symptoms and the history, how, what brought it on, including age. So the same kind of chest pain in someone who's 30 has a very different probability, much lower probability of being a heart attack, for example, uh, than someone uh, who's in their 70s. So the symptoms and history. The next thing uh, is the heart tracing. And there are certain changes on the heart, uh, particularly what's called ST elevation, where, the, where uh, after the little beat, uh, the QRS complex, uh, the, uh, the baseline goes up above where it normally should be, uh, which signify a significant heart attack. And finally, and importantly, blood tests. These have changed over time, but now uh, in the UK and most places globally, uh, the key blood test is something called troponin. And if those are raised, uh, they demonstrate uh, usually damage to uh, the heart. So if someone comes in with possible heart attack symptoms, there are broadly uh, three possibilities. The first one is that this isn't from the heart. Now, some of the things which feel really bad in terms of pains in the chest are uh, not dangerous at all, very unpleasant, but not dangerous. They're not from the heart, and they don't have any uh, particular long-term implications, for example, spasming of chest wall muscles. Uh, some things may be dangerous but are not heart attacks. Something like a clot in the lung uh, can cause pain in the chest. So there are serious things that aren't heart attacks which are also need treatment. Uh, but in any case, these are not myocardial infarction. The second possibility, which is the other extreme in a sense, is when the uh, paramedic, the nurse, the doctor does an ECG and what they see is this ST elevation. And what you can see in the right is the normal little bump P wave, the QRS, and then there's a flat area and then the T wave which follows that. Uh, follows that. In a ST elevation, that area is raised. And this indicates that someone has had a significant heart attack called an ST elevation myocardial infarction, uh, shortened to STEMI. And these are likely to need urgent, i.e. emergency, uh, interventions, including uh, um, physical ones like catheterization. Third possibility is you may get the typical symptoms, uh, and there may be some changes in the ECG, or there may not be, um, 
but uh, what you don't have is the ST elevation. And in general, if there's a significant change to the troponin blood test, uh, this is thought to be a, a, what's called an NSTEMI, a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. It's a heart attack, but a smaller one in general. Uh, and uh, if it's not, uh, if it's very typical, but they don't have the, the uh, blood changes, it tends to be called unstable angina. So the heart muscle hasn't died or been seriously damaged, but uh, there's no doubt that there's a very, very near miss. I'm putting those together because although they are different, they are treated broadly the same. So those are the three uh, broad outcomes. Uh, not hot from the heart, STEMI, ST elevation, myocardial infarction, or NSTEMI, or unstable angina. Fortunately, the treatment of heart attack has substantially improved um, uh, over the last few decades. In the 1960s, uh, it's, thought, it's estimated that around 7 in 10 people died of myocardial infarction. Uh, now, uh, 7 in 10 people survive. And if people get to hospital, uh, the outlook for most people with myocardial infarction is actually now very good. And this has been uh, achieved by a series of scientific advances each one of which has lowered the chance that someone who has a myocardial infarction uh, will go on to die from it. And I'm just going to highlight one because it's a particularly uh, spectacular example of a very important trial that has changed practice in this area. This is a trial uh, from 1988, so for a while ago, uh, and it was done in about 17,000 patients. This is a big uh, trial uh, done in people with heart attack uh, which are with, are with, with, with ST elevation MI in the main, not absolutely exclusively. And the first thing they found was uh, at that stage, routine care uh, was associated with 13% mortality. So 13% of people would die uh, who had a heart attack. And by this stage, several things were already being done. Blood thinners, uh, beta blockers, a variety of other things were already being used. So in, things had improved already. If people were randomized to aspirin, just one aspirin tablet, uh, and then aspirin to follow up, uh, mortality dropped by 20%. And then if they were given a clot-busting drug, and the one that was then used at that stage was something called streptokinase, uh, which broke up clots, uh, mortality was also reduced by 20%. And if you put those two drugs together, the mortality rate from a heart attack dropped by 40%. So this one trial demonstrated that two drugs could lead to a reduction of 40% mortality. And improvements have continued since then, but this was a particularly uh, important milestone. And 30-day uh, mortality um, is now uh, less than 5% and can be down to 2%. So this is a really major change. Of course, some people uh, sadly die at home before or on, on the way to hospital and don't get as far as the hospital. Now, worth pausing on the two drugs that I've just talked about, because they are, are important. Um, the first is one that, e that almost everybody will have in their medicine cabinet, uh, aspirin. And this was really the first drug that was also found to have activity against platelets. Platelets are uh, uh, bits of the blood which are involved in clotting. And so by using a drug which reduced platelet activity, the risk of clotting was significantly reduced. Now, this is a very old drug. Uh, willow bark, which is where this originally came from, uh, was used for fever, and aspirin does work against fever, um, <clears throat> from at least the time 
of Hippocrates. So that's about 400 BC. So this is a very old drug. Um, uh, it was promoted for fevers in the UK uh, in the 1760s um, and uh, by stages got to the point where it was commercialised and the Bayer Company uh, took it on initially from about 1897 and called it uh, aspirin. Used a lot against um, uh, pain uh, and uh, also uh, against fever. Um, the first trial to start for heart disease started in 1971, uh, and um, I think people were really astonished by the fact that a drug that was so widely used and had been in everyone's uh, grandparents' medicine cabinets, just that not their own, had, was turned out to have such uh, remarkable improvements uh, in heart disease mortality. Um, so several other drugs have subsequently come along, which uh, also um, help to reduce uh, platelet activity. Uh, and uh, now if someone has a heart attack, uh, they will generally be given two antiplatelet drugs, uh, aspirin uh, and one of these ones. So a drug, for example, like called uh, clopidogrel uh, is quite usually, quite often used um, uh, in, in people who've had a heart attack or are about to have uh, cardiac procedures of various sorts. And they're usually given with aspirin, and in the long run, people will often continue on aspirin uh, indefinitely. But they're mainly working against these tiny dots you see on the blood film on the right, uh, which are platelets. So thrombolytic clot-busting drugs are the next uh, drug I just want to talk about. It was the other one in that ISIS trial I talked about. Uh, the first was streptokinase. Um, uh, this uh, is, was, is actually produced naturally by uh, bacteria, particularly the beta-hemolytic streptococcus. Uh, it was isolated in the 1930s, and the bacteria probably does it to break down clots so that it can move around the body and not be trapped by clots. It was isolated, used for breaking down clots medically, and then subsequently some uh, new drug uh, classes, uh, the TPA uh, drugs, usually abbreviated as um, uh, have been used, but what all of them do is they break down recently formed clots. And I've illustrated this on the right just because I think it just shows the point. Uh, on the left, what you've got uh, is uh, the hand of someone where one of their arteries has clotted off, and then they're given one of these drugs, and then you can see on the right uh, the same X-ray of the blood flow through the, through the hand has completely back, gone back to normal. So they can break down these clots and lead to uh, the blood flow going back to what, what happened before the clot was formed. But what has uh, been the next stage of development um, is that for most people who have an ST uh, raise, a severe myocardial infarction or heart attack, a STEMI, uh, will now... Be, if they're within a relatively short period of the symptoms starting, move straight on uh, to have uh, an angiogram, which is where uh, they, the, uh, they put some dye in and look at the blood vessels of the um, heart. And then if there's a narrowing that they can uh, re increase, uh, or if there's a blood clot that they can remove, uh, there will be direct action to widen the arteries immediately and therefore relieve uh, the oxygenation of the heart. And what happens is people put in uh, a, uh, a sort of small probe that's got a balloon in it and around it a mesh. And then when it's gone through the narrowing, that is expanded uh, and the mesh increases 
and then the balloon is collapsed again, removed, and the mesh is left holding the blood vessel open. And this is used both in emergencies and, as I'll come on to, uh, in um, people treating symptoms of angina. But uh, in terms of uh, improvement in heart outcomes, this has been an, another very major step forward uh, in terms of our management of heart attacks. Now, this procedure has been around for a while, but it's been steadily improving in its quality over time. A whole series of different improvements have occurred. Um, uh, two I'd particularly like to identify, uh, drug-eluting stents, ones that actually produce drugs that make it less likely they'll be clotting around that uh, network, and biodegradable stents, where some of them uh, may actually just uh, disappear over time. But the improvements are occurring, as I say, the whole time. Now, how rapidly uh, you want someone, we, or we would want to, go to stenting depends on the situation. If a patient has an ST elevation, myocardial infarction, a STEMI, they will usually, if it's recent onset, go directly to having angiogram to see if something can be done directly. Uh, and if that can't be done rapidly, uh, they will probably have a clot-busting drug. Uh, like, um, uh, as I've previously described. If they have an NSTEMI or an unstable angina, they'll often quite rapidly, over days to weeks, go for angiogram and, if necessary, uh, procedures. Um, uh, but that may not be immediate. In fact, it, very, it usually uh, is not immediate, at least in the UK. Uh, and then if someone's just got stable angina, where, as I say, if they walk a particular distance or go up a certain number of stairs, they get the symptoms. Uh, they'll often be investigated with an angiogram uh, and may have stents, but these are done as more of an elective procedure, so not uh, as an emergency. There has been an increasing move to make sure that people who don't need to have um, uh, a coronary artery procedure don't have one. Uh, and uh, most widely thing that's used at the moment is coronary uh, or cardiac CT. Uh, and this is a much, this is a essentially almost entirely, not completely entirely, uh, non-invasive uh, approach to looking at narrowing of the coronary artery. And if it's normal, people then don't need to go on to have a puncture in either their wrist or groin uh, and a, um, uh, a procedure where something dies squirted into their heart. So it's a way of screening people out, essentially, who have uh, typical symptoms. But uh, if they have significant uh, problems uh, seen on that, or uh, if that's not available or not appropriate, then they'll go directly to PCI, uh, to the uh, angi angi angiography uh, and angioplasty, where we put in a balloon um, uh, if they have uh, appropriate blood vessels. Not, it very much depends on the individual and their own uh, set of problems. The other thing which can be done to, um, uh, so angioplasty is a way of going through the uh, narrowing and then putting a stent in so that the blood vessel continues. An alternative way of doing this uh, is coronary artery bypass grafting. And this can be taking uh, one of the arteries uh, for example, the internal mammary artery uh, that from another bit of the system, pl plugging it into the heart, uh, or it may in some cases involve taking veins and providing a bridge 
around a particular narrowing of the blood vessels. Um, coronary artery bypass grafting remains an extremely effective and important uh, operation, but it's a major operation. Um, usually people will spend several, it involves splitting the chest open in most cases, although there are uh, newer techniques, certainly may mean time in intensive care and quite a period of time to recover. So it's highly effective, but uh, not without risk. Um, and uh, therefore, the choice between angioplasty, doing things within the uh, arteries, and uh, the, the surgery uh, is, uh, has to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. And if someone's got uh, relevant um, things, the cardiologists and the surgeons will come and talk to them about which they think is most appropriate. But over time, uh, and this is just UK data, uh, on the top line, what we've got is the number of people who are having uh, the um, angioplasty, PCI, uh, and on the bottom, uh, what we've got uh, is the number of people having a coronary artery bypass uh, operation. And as you can see, they're still used, uh, but many more people will have this relatively straightforward and quick procedure. Often people can go, go, go home if they're having it electively the same day or the next day, uh, compared to uh, this major operation. And then in those who've had any kind of cardiovascular event, whether it's angina or a heart attack, they'll generally be put on several drugs. They'll be put on antihypertensives if they're not already on them, and we've talked about those already. Um, they'll be given drugs to reduce their cholesterol, particularly statins. They'll be given one of the drugs or two of the drugs acting, uh, or more, acting on the neurohormonal neuro uh, system. Uh, and things like beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, which I've, again, talked about already. Uh, and they'll usually be given an antiplatelet drug, aspirin or others. And they'll have this group of drugs, and it seems a lot of drugs, but all of them have really clear evidence of benefit and additive benefit. So the combination is better than any one of the drugs uh, alone. And that significantly reduces the risk of them having another major event uh, subsequently. I'm just going to talk about uh, one more drug class, uh, and that's because quite a lot of people, again, will be on them now or will know people on them, and that's things, a drug class called nitrates. This is an old drug. It was originally noticed the people who were handling uh, nitroglycerin uh, explosives uh, had symptoms, and this has been known uh, since the, uh, the mid-1800s. Um, and it was recognized as a treatment for angina uh, from uh, the 1870s, at the end of the 1870s. What they do, the nitrates do, is they can be given by a variety of mechanisms. The most common ones are either a spray or a tiny tablet under the tongue for very rapid relief. So if someone's got angina, uh, they can give them a, a prevention by a drug by mouth, which is gradually uh, released over a period of time, or they've been given some by a patch. Those are the most common ones, there are, there are other ways of giving them, those are the most common. And um, what they do is they relax the coronary arteries and indeed other arteries. Now they don't, uh, unlike the other drugs I've talked about, they don't change the long-term outlook, but what they do do is reduce symptoms. So they're very important drugs as part of symptom relief. Two other points before I uh, summarise um, uh, what we've talked about. The first is most people uh, 
with angina or a very high proportion of people with angina uh, have it due to narrowing of the blood vessels of the heart. And those will be seen on angiography or on CT uh, or on MRI. However, it is possible for people to have angina, which is still ischemic heart disease, but with normal coronary arteries. Uh, and uh, there are a variety of reasons for this, but two in particular just worth highlighting are people who have coronary artery spasm. So the artery is normal, but it spasms, and this causes ischemia. Um, and the second is microvascular angina, where it's not in the big vessels, the big coronary arteries, but in the much smaller vessels. And the treatment for those is different than you, if you had a particular narrowing in one of the coronary arteries. So I'm making that point just because some people who have angina have to have slightly different treatments uh, than some of the ones I've just been talking about, or for slightly different reasons. The second thing I thought it was worth uh, highlighting uh, it was um, inflammatory conditions. We've known for um, a long time that uh, increasing inflammation increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. It does, there are, does this in at least two broad ways. Um, uh, people who have uh, inflammation, it probably accelerates the build-up of atherosclerosis and uh, the development of um, cardiovascular disease. Uh, and, uh, for example, air pollution, this is one of the ways in which it is thought, in fact, to have its activity. And secondly, if people have an acute inflammatory event, uh, which should include several different medical conditions, but uh, probably most commonly infections, this increases the risk that uh, people will have an ischemic heart uh, acute event uh, such as unstable angina or myocardial infarction. We've known this for many years. Uh, many infections can cause this. The more severe the infection, uh, the bigger the chance that someone will have a subsequent heart attack and the longer the period of time, which may go out for weeks or months, uh, that they are at increased risk. So a very severe pneumonia, for example, in intensive care has a much higher risk than someone who just has mild pneumonia uh, and that has higher risk than someone has uh, relatively minor symptoms. And the most recent of those, of course, is COVID, where after se severe COVID, we know that there is a significantly increased risk of myocardial infarction uh, and for uh, slightly less severe but still significant COVID, uh, a lower risk but still a risk nonetheless. So inflammation and heart disease uh, go quite strongly together. And then finally, um, uh, the, uh, I'd like to just conclude uh, by tying together the various points I've made. We've really seen remarkable improvements over the last many decades in uh, ischemic heart disease, coronary uh, heart disease. And these have been a whole series of incremental improvements in primary prevention, in secondary prevention, and in treatment. In primary prevention, these have included uh, reductions in smoking, uh, reductions in air pollution, uh, in some cases uh, systematic improvements in exercise, uh, uh, in, in improvements in terms of diet, particularly reductions in salt. In secondary prevention, we've now got a very wide range of things we can do to reduce people's blood pressure if they have hypertension. The key thing is to identify it uh, and to reduce cholesterol, uh, for example, statins. And then treatment of acute events, particularly heart attacks, myocardial infarction, have really substantially improved, where the chance that someone, if they uh, call 999 uh, and get uh, healthcare rapidly, 
can uh, reduce their risk of dying or having long-term problems as a result have really substantially improved uh, through combinations of drugs uh, and emergency stenting uh, and for the right people, um, surgery when that is needed. So many things have come together uh, to improve this. Uh, many of those improvements will continue. For example, the, reduce, the continuing reduction in smoking uh, is a major positive thing. Uh, but there are some headwinds, and probably the most important of those is the steadily rising obesity, where people are living with obesity and living with overweight uh, because of the environments that they live in. So there's uh, a lot uh, in the future to look forward to. Drugs will improve, uh, procedures will improve, but I think we should acknowledge that there are also some things uh, that we need to do to tackle uh, these other risk factors, which are, are going to lead to significant numbers of people having preventable heart disease. Thank you very much. <laughs>